Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today it is my great pleasure to be joined by Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England. In December 2019, Andrew Bailey was announced as the Governor of the Bank of England and he began his term on the 16th of March 2020. Prior to that, for four years, he was CEO of the Financial Conduct Authority until taking up the role of Governor of the Bank of England. And as CEO of the FCA, Andrew is also a member of the Prudential Regulation Committee, the Financial Policy Committee and the Board of the Financial Conduct Authority. He has held many governance positions in his career and in previous tenures also worked at the bank in a number of different areas. For example, Executive Director for Banking Services and Chief Cashier, Head of the Bank's Special Resolution Unit and also the Governor's Private Secretary and Head of the International Economic Analysis Division in Monetary Analysis. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful that that you could take the time. This is a busy year for you, no doubt. The first thing I do is I ask all our guests which seems a little trite in these circumstances, to ask you what you're particularly focused on for the remainder of this year. I mean, goodness me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, where do you start? I'm afraid you do have to begin with COVID. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I started my term as governor on March the 16th, which was, you know, timing is everything. And it, it wasn't the best timing because it was it literally, I, I would say on, on that Monday, we had, I think, I think it was about a third of the Bank of England staff were, we're in the building. We, we'd gone down to a sort of a rater to try and uh, obviously to try and sort of keep some distance between groups and staff. By the end of the week, basically that third had gone as well. And so since then, I've been here in a you know nearly not totally but nearly deserted building, which I have to say has been the strangest experience. But yes, in terms of your question, I mean COVID obviously and the, the economic consequences of COVID are the dominating theme. So, so we're recording this shortly after Inclusion Week, and I know that, that we were very keen to to hear your views. And, and, and I know for you, the conversation about diversity and inclusion really mattered. But the Bank of England, of course, is one of the oldest financial institutions. So I'm really fascinated to, to understand how the Bank of England ensures that the diversity and inclusion is really embedded in, in its culture. Well, it, it's a great question because we are having to do like a lot of institutions, do a lot on that front. I mean, to, to be clear, I mean, the bankers have been working hard on this sort of front for, what, the last 15, 20 years, I would say. But there's no question that we've had to step up what we're doing, which is absolutely right. I mean, I you know, I think this, if COVID is the biggest thing I've had on my agenda and the biggest, in a sense, unexpected thing for my term as governor, which started in March, then the second thing I would say in terms of notable events since Start of my term is is the Black Lives Matter, the whole issue around around that. So, and that has re-emphasised to me and to us the importance of this whole agenda. So that is the second thing, but it's also why it matters a lot to us. And is, is there anything sort of notable that you particularly focused on in the context of that, and also diversity inclusion as a whole? I'm sort of quite keen to understand not only sort of where your priorities are honed in, but but also what's arguably being quite difficult to change. Yes. I mean, I think there's a number of strands to it for us. I've been fascinated also by the growing attention being paid to the sort of what I broadly call the sort of the consequences of meritocracy. You know, there's one or two 
very interesting books, which I'm currently reading my way through and all the spare time I have on the subject. And I think it does play into the diversity debate because, you know, I joined the bank in 1985, so I've had a fair time here. I've always characterized the bank as a quite determinedly meritocratic organization. You know, it's, it's been in the DNA. You know, it's not an organization, by the way. You know, people come into the Bank of England and, and, who don't know it and say, often say a few things about it. It's not an institution that is stocked with what I would call, you know, senior people drawn from the very privileged classes. It's not actually, in my view, like that at all. And it's also a much younger institution in terms of its um, staff and people. I mean, people have this image that you know it must be full of you know very old people, <laughs> and it isn't actually at all. So that sort of tells you something about the place. And there's no question that in my time, which is sort of 35 years with a small break, we have what I might call sort of changed the bank into a very sort of necessarily what I'm a sort of technically meritocratic institution. It is full of very smart people. And we're lucky when, honestly, you know, recruitment is something, you know, the bank has a very strong reputation. You know, we recruit very strongly, I would say, not just economists, but obviously economics is our sort of core skill. And over the last 35 years, I mean, the institution that I joined doesn't bear much resemblance to the institution, you know, I'm in, in today. And that is, I think, both has been a success and has been absolutely essential as the role of the bank has grown and changed. And frankly, I think, as in many walks of life, you know, the technical demands on doing jobs have changed as well. But the challenge, I think, and this is, this is where the diversity challenge comes in, is if I'm honest with you, I think we went through a period where we, in a sense, we let meritocracy play out, as it were, in a sort of unconstrained fashion. And occasionally we asked ourselves, well, you know, why aren't we seeing progress? So gender was a good example of it. And the answer was, well, you know, it's all really quite difficult because when you look at the gender mix of people taking economics degrees in Britain today, it's heavily skewed. So is it any wonder that the Bank of England <laughs> has this characteristic? No, you know, we get, in a sense, you know, we're just a product of the time, as it were, or products of the age, and, and left it. And somewhat, you know, I think left it there. Now, of course, that's, honestly, that's the, that's the wrong answer. And for me, it's the wrong answer because I think there are two really important principles I work on with this. One, we are a public service institution. Yeah, we are undertaking very important public interest functions in the Bank of England. That's the reason we exist. And we do have to bear a sufficient resemblance to the public we serve to do that. You know, I think it doesn't have to be arithmetically exact, but it does, you know, it does have to bear a, you know, a striking and sufficient resemblance to the society and the public we serve. So if you just let sort of let it rip, as it were, in terms of meritocracy, and you just say, well, we'll, we'll go where we go, as it were, and we won't try to shape it and develop people and look for different markets, then you're not only not guaranteed to get the outcome you want, but you're probably, you know, probably sure you won't, actually. 
that's one point. The second point I would say is, and I try to sort of not make this sound too trite, is I don't want to work in an institution that's full of people like me. <laughs> and I think everybody should say that, really. I want to work, you know, the better organization to work in is more diverse, more diverse in, all, in obviously, as we know now, all sorts of ways. And again, if you let the sort of, if you let the sort of really pure, narrow, meritocratic sort of argument run its way, particularly as, as I think you know, quite a lot of the literature that's currently being written on the subject points at the educational system here, then you don't get there, in all honesty. You have to do a lot more work to manage to influence what you want and to develop the people you get as well. And, and we, you know, I think probably we're not, we're not alone in this by any means, but I think that's, in many ways, if I stand back from the sort of, if you like, the day-to-day side of it, and it, that's some of the big underlying issues for me in terms of what we have to do. And I, and I think it very much chimes with what a lot of senior executives are explaining sort of before we started recording that I've, I've just literally come hot foot from Cybos, which was a main stage event talking about about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And a lot of institutions are thinking about we have to be very proactive. We have to be very focused on practical things that we can do in order to to change the mix because uh, because of the reality. And, and I'm really interested in in perhaps whether you could share some of the practical things that the bank has been doing. Um, maybe over the last year. Let's look at a year as a, as a time frame. And just if there are some very specific things, obviously in an extraordinary year as well, um, to in order to drive the change that you were just talking about. I've been I've been out of the bank for three or four years, so I've come back to it actually, and I've been very impressed in many ways by what I've come back to. I think the bank has made a load of progress in terms of developing its networks uh, of staff, of changing its recruitment patterns, but we have we've still got work to do. And you know, I'd, I'd highlight a number of things. First of all. We have to confront the fact that when we look at the, the data, the record on performance isn't, frankly, as where it needs to be. So when we look at how you know, different groups of staff develop, who gets promoted when, the speed of promotion, speed of development, how that translates into reward, it's not where we want it to be in terms of the sort of the balance. And I think this is this is a crucial thing because again, it sort of you know, it comes to the culture of the institution. It's not, a, in my view, it's not a bad culture at all. I mean, it's but it's a. I think there's a danger with any organisation that you know when you look, when you get that that sort of evidence and you look at it and then you go back, you, you know, you you have this obvious sort of loss of confidence. Goes you know, at this point, you say, why aren't we dealing with this? What's the issue? And I think you can then often get a first reaction, which is, well, no, 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 you know, we've, we've gone back and we've, you know, we've looked at the evidence and we've looked at case studies and we've applied the test. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, you know we're not, no, nobody's making the, you know, the wrong choice. Nobody's making a biased choice. And it's not I come back to the, merit, the meritocracy point. But I think if you leave the whole debate there and you say, oh, okay, fine, well, that's good, you know, we can sort of, we can stand our decisions up, as it were. If you leave the issue at that point, I think you're missing the, the issue because the next question I think you have to ask yourself, if you are in that situation, I think the next question you have to ask yourself is, well, why is this happening? It's not good enough to say, oh, okay, well, that's good. We've got a story. We can stand our decisions up, as it were. You have to go further and say, why are we getting these outcomes? And what do we do about it? 
I think in terms of what's changed and what's changing is a much greater determination, and I'm very, very strongly behind this, to go to, you know, to go in, to go to that next stage and say, we can't just accept the sort of, if you like, the sort of the logic, the logic of our decisions within our own terms of reference. We have to go to what the underpinning sort of causes and start to address those. So is it things about our way of working? Are we working in ways that have effects on to, in, in that sense? Are we, and I, you know, it's a bit of a leading question because I, the answer is yes, you know, are we lacking role models? I, I think role models are important. You know, I, I really do. I, I think that unless, you know, people, people, particularly more junior people, can say, I can observe looking at them, looking at sort of management, that people like me get on in this place. And I think if they answer the question, well, no, I can't observe that people like me, you know, merely by observation, I can't observe that people like me are getting on in this place. It doesn't seem to me surprising that people conclude that that's you know, discouraging and you know, question, question where they are. And it's very, very much chimes with what organisations are being very, very precise about. It's thinking about culture. And it's fascinating. You know, we had a great pleasure of interviewing the FCA. And they said, you know, we look at culture under kind of non-financial conduct. Because uh, actually, you have to right now. You have to be paying attention to culture, particularly role models and networks. Absolutely, and and we quite often in diversity inclusion sort of think we, we naturally tends to hone in on the on the conversation about gender. Well, obviously, we're thinking very broadly uh, right the way across the entire spectrum that is diversity inclusion. You know, and that that extends to disability, LGBT plus. Also thinking about ethnic minority representation and and social mobility as well. I think is is really fascinating. Can you can you give us just a few insights into you know what the Bank of England is thinking about in in ensuring that the diversity inclusion efforts also extend to support those groups as well. You mean inside the bank, or in our role as a regulator as well? I guess it's a two-part question. So, so one is what you're doing yourselves, and then also expectations of the. No, I've run both both sort of regulatory sides. So I I, I was CEO of the FCA until earlier this year, and I think both you know the Bank of England as a prudential regulator and the FCA as a conduct regulator. I mean, we'll tell you the same thing actually, which is culture does matter, and. You know, I can tell you, having you know gone through the financial crisis, I've been a regulator for the last decade on senior levels. I think pretty uniformly, regulators will say to you, when we come across firms that are frankly the wrong side of our line, whether that be conduct or credential, there is more often than not there is a cultural issue there. It doesn't often happen randomly. And I think particularly with conduct, but it's also true with credential as well, actually. I think that history would tell you the link might be slightly less obvious, but it's true. There is usually a cultural issue. There is usually a problem in the culture. It may be to do with behavior of management. It may be something more deep-seated in terms of culture and the organization. So that explains why you know, I think when you talk to regulators these days, they will tell you that it does feature quite heavily. You know, governance and culture are, which are often also not unrelated, 
feature very strongly when they come to do the sort of the diagnosis, if you like, of the, of the firm and the diagnosis of what they're seeing in terms of the headline outcomes from their agenda. So, you no, know, it is important. And one of the advantages of being a regulator is that because you see the whole peer group of firms, you can make these comparisons. I mean, you know, you can sit down in a regulator and say, let's compare, you know, X, Y, and Z, because we see them all. And it's, you know, it's both, <laughs> of course, some fascinating conversations come then. But it's also one advantage because, you, you, you know, you, you get a better sense of, you know, a better ability to judge because you can do the peer Assessment. And, and to what extent is your, your conversation with those firms extending into, you know, this is what we've observed and we encourage you to pay attention to culture, your diversity and inclusion efforts. Is, is, is it fair to, to, to say that that conversation is shifting? Yes, I think, I think we have. I think it has changed. I think we do regularly, um, particularly the FCA with conduct, say to a firm, you know, we believe that we can, you know, from what we observe, you can trace this outcome, which you know is unwanted. This, you know, this outcome that we're most concerned about, you can trace it back to sort of, if you like, sort of causal issues of which you know broadly defined culture is often optimal. I think so. So yes, we do do that. Actually, we have also, and again, I think it's it's been a development of recent years. Put our own effort into saying you know, more broadly developing diversity. Uh, the agenda of diversity is important. You know, again, I think more diverse firms are—it's linked to culture. Therefore, it's linked to outcomes which regulators care about. And I think that's a perfect moment to turn to Cynthia Akinsanya for some research to support today's discussion. The Bank of England values diversity and inclusion for many reasons. One way they support their diverse workforce is through their networks. These include the LGBT and Allies Network which is a participant in the Workplace Equalities Index. The Disability Network supports individuals with specific employment issues and raises awareness of disabilities and the challenges people face. The Bank of England Ethnic Minorities Network, also known as BEAM, ensures BAME staff experience the same performance reviews, rates of pay and development opportunities as non-BAME colleagues. BEAM is committed to addressing the imbalance of BAME representation at a senior management level. The Carers Network provides information, advice and support colleagues need to balance caring responsibilities with a successful career. The bank also runs the Christian Union, the Jewish Network and the Muslim Network. So thank you, Cynthia. And all that research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. That's diversity with a C, not with an S. Diversitypodcast.com. We're also found on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And of course, do follow us on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. And we'd love a rating, by the way, because it all helps to promote the show. Is, is there anything um, you're, you're particularly keen to draw out that we haven't talked about so far? When I look at the Bank of England, and you know, in many ways, I, you know, I'd say the same thing at the SCA as well, actually. I think increasingly and correctly, I ask myself the question, we appear to have made more progress in some areas than others. So I think relatively, we've made more progress on gender than quite a few other areas. And 
Then you have to ask the question, why again? Now, I think one explanation for that is that I think we started out, to go back through sort of the history of this, I think most organisations like ours took up gender earlier than some of the other aspects of diversity. So I think it's, in one sense, not surprising. By the way, I should say, I must say, to be clear, we are not in any sense where we need, you know, we've still got, we've still got work to do and progress to make, don't get me wrong, I must say that, because I don't want to sound in any sense complacent. But I think we have more made, made more progress in terms of role models and gender. We're not where we need to be, but we can at least tell a story about we're getting there, I think. But we have a lot more progress to do in other areas, I would say. I think also we're still, you know, we're still extending the work as well. I think social mobility is an important aspect of this. The SCA really took on social mobility really in the last few years. I mean, Chris Willard, who's one of my senior colleagues, really sort of, in a sense, championed it at the SCA, and I thought it was a very good thing to do because I think it, you know, it leans against any sort of sense that, as I say, this sort of concept of meritocracy leads you to particular concentrations and you know, looking in the wrong direction sometimes. I have to say that on the, on the question of ethnicity, we have made less progress. I mean, that is why I think in many ways you know, the whole issue around Black Lives Matter is important because it's important in its own right. But it's important because it is, I think, a a kick up the backside, if you like, to say you've got a lot more to do on that front. You know, you've made relatively more progress in some other areas. I think the infrastructure, broadly defined in, in some areas, is better developed than others. I, I mean, I'll give you an anecdote, actually, from the SEA, but it's true for Bank of England as well. We're quite competitive, actually, in terms of where we, you know, for, for those areas where there's sort of, there's external <laughs> measurement, we're quite competitive. <laughs> I mean, probably all organisations That doesn't are. sound like the city at all. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We were quietly encouraged by our progress in terms of our ranking in the Stonewall Index. And, and then one year, this is about two or three years ago, we went down. And we were a bit shocked about this because we thought we were doing rather well. In fact, we, we thought, well, hang on a minute, we've really sort of tried hard this year. Well, tried hard this year, actually, and we've gone down. And what we concluded and realised was that, of course, actually, of course, others were trying even harder, uh, <laughs> which is great. I mean, but, you know, in a way, and I said, well, I said, well, that's a good thing, really. So we thought we could have tried even harder. It sort of spurred us on. So there is, I mean, it, you know, as you say, the trouble with the city is, you know, you could be sort of sad if we reduced everything down to a competition. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but that's why metrics matter, isn't it? That's exactly why, yeah. It, it does work. I mean, I, you know, I was, if you'd asked me sort of 15 years ago, I'd have been, to be honest with you, a bit of a sceptic about targets because, you know, does it really induce the right behaviours? But I got to a point, I'm trying to think now, probably 10 or 12 years ago, where I realized that we were just not making enough progress. And it was all good sort of good intentions in words and not actions, and that we had to start taking it in a more determined view, and that actually targets, providing you sort of you manage them correctly and help in that respect. And they have, I think. You know, I think that that side of things has moved forwards, but we've got a long way to go. I mean, we've got a lot more to do 
honestly, we've got more to do in relatively more to do in some areas than others, I would say. And, and just one final question before, before we wrap up, which is a question I'm asking everybody, actually, no matter sort of where, where they are from the world of financial services and also around the world as well, because we have listeners in more than 50 different countries as well, which is, you know, we're arguing, well, we are going into some tough economic times. There's no question about that at all. And there is a risk, there's a massive risk that actually the conversation about diversity and inclusion can drop down the corporate agenda. So my question to everybody is, why is it so important right now that diversity and inclusion remains high? I think it's important because we're going through some, well, we're going through obviously a very strange and difficult time in terms of how institutions operate. I mean, by the way, I think the Bank of England, like, you know, like quite a lot of many institutions, has adapted remarkably well to it. But in going through this though, big adaptation, it's important that we don't lose the objectives and progress that we want to have on diversity. And we have to try harder. So, you know, we've done a lot of work in the bank, for instance, developing our, um, you know, our, our, our internal blogs. So staff can, you know, start, they can't actually talk to each other in the way they used to. They've got more opportunities. And it's actually coming on very well, actually, I would say. People are generally very pleased with it. To be honest with you, one of the things that, I mean, you know, there's many alarming things about COVID. I mean, one of the things that alarmed me about COVID, particularly if you go back to the spring, was how we should interpret the evidence that the death rate was skewed in terms of diverse characteristics. I do a weekly video for our staff because obviously I don't see them that much. And you know, I did a video saying that one of the things that we're going to have to be very, very concerned about and work our way around is where we say, you know, one group of staff can come back to work because they have certain characteristics, but it is too risky for another group to come back who then get marginalised. I mean, that's a disaster. Now, I think I think the evidence on COVID has probably moved on since then, but, I mean, back in the spring, I was very worried about it because I thought, this is going to be a disaster for us if we start applying that type of... I mean, and applying it for good reason. I mean, we do not, you know... First priority is we don't put our staff in danger. But if the consequence of, of that priority is that we effectively apply, or we reach an outcome where some groups can come back to work and some can't, that's an absolute disaster. Now, I say it hasn't really played out like that in the end, but I mean, that's the sort of thing I think, you know, you have to be very concerned about in society at the moment. And to that, in my mind, while you're talking, I'm thinking that's about you know, enlightened leadership who really understand their, their organisation and their people and their familial circumstances and their personal circumstances and also understanding the future of the workplace and thinking about you know how, how, how people are going to come back to whichever model they adopt or indeed to which they adapt. Well, I agree. And I think, I mean, there are other aspects of COVID. I think there's a, obviously there's a very important mental health aspect. Again, I'm very pleased with the way the Bank of England is now a much more open organisation in terms of tackling and enabling people to, to, in a sense, tackle mental health issues, because that's important. And we are putting strain on you. There's a lot of strain, I think, in the current environment. And we have to be very cognizant of these issues as we go forwards. I mean, there's also an issue, obviously, that some people are more able to work from home than others. Again, in society, that matters a lot. But you see it in the Bank of England, but you see it much more broadly in society. I mean, again, there will be effects, and we have to be, I think, very alert to those effects and, and the consequences that could follow from them. So I have one final question for you. What are you optimistic about? Well, I, I'm optimistic that I think certainly we are moving on in the work with it. I mean, one of the challenges I get from staff is 
is it all talk and no action? Because like many institutions, we're quite good at talking. <laughs> but And I do see the evidence. I, I, I am optimistic in the sense that I do see the evidence that we are moving on and that we are more now action-oriented. Honestly, I, you know, I think our staff would tell you we have to really prove that. So we've got to actually prove that we're now focused on action. But I do see a very broad commitment across the organization to do that. And that is that does encourage me. But this is not a point of resistance, actually. I'm also encouraged by messages I get from colleagues who say, I wish we'd got to this point years ago. And I wish I I wish you know, and I never said it, but I wish I had. I think that's a very poignant way to end the the conversation. Andrew, I can't tell you, I I know, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how busy you are, but to have taken the time to speak to us today, immensely grateful. And and thank you and and stay well and and, uh, for your time, we're grateful. Well, thanks, Julian, and you too. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Pleasure. Thank you very much. And as always, to all our listeners at Diversity Podcast, thank you for tuning in. I've been Julia Streets. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.